Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hello, welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations where I'm podcasting today and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And today I'm interviewing Lachlan for the second time, which is really exciting to have a repeat guest on the podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Marie. And um, I'm coming to you from Yorta Yorta land today. Excellent. Another, uh, are you in lockdown at the moment? No. Oh, uh, yeah, just that, I, I think it's that awkward phase of, yeah, just out of lockdown um, here in Shepparton, which is, yeah, a little bit more freedoms now, which is lovely. Excellent. So you, last time we spoke, um, we covered lots of things, but at the moment you've been working on something new and exciting. Do you want to share with the listeners your, yeah. an update on what you're doing? Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I'm um yeah, it's been I think a long time in the making in, in my brain at least. Um and yeah, a lot of ideas that have been throwing around to, to get to this point. Um so Slade Consulting is my private practice. Um and when I was setting up my private practice, I really wanted to make sure that I was setting it up with the good balance of what I needed um, in my social work practice to, um, yeah, recharge my batteries and use, I suppose, my my talents and my my skills that I've built up over now 11 years in, in social work practice, which, um, yeah, makes me feel a little bit old. Um, and so, yes, yeah, like consulting is a, um, my, my private practice and it focuses mostly on the LGBTIQA plus community um, and counselling for um, within our community um, and also with victims and survivors of trauma and you know sometimes those two groups of people will cross over um, sometimes it'll be yeah uniquely one of the two um, and the way that I'm doing that and focusing on on those two groups is in a number of ways so um, I think I may have shared last time that the reason I got into social work was for the the breadth and the depth of what social work had to offer and that's still quite true today so I yeah do counselling as part of that um, and yeah certainly had a lot of my experience so far has been um, in the clinical space um, also doing some group and clinical supervision. So I had some experience off and on uh, through my career doing that as well uh, in education. So I'm doing some um, Zoom sessions, um, starting with um, LGBTIQA plus 101 type sessions of, you know, what do all these letters mean? And also how to create a safer um, yeah, practice with um, queer communities and also some consulting work as well. So there's a lot in there, but um, yeah. I, I like that. Um, yeah, I like the, the variety that that offers as well. So, I mean, there is the, the language 101, which I'm curious about, but I wanted to ask around the intersectionality of your work. So I, I think sometimes um, services can seem very specialised, but in a way 
this this even within that community there would be old young different cultures different religions different backgrounds different presentations like there's there's so much intersectionality that it's not just their gender or sexuality that is necessarily what they're attending a service for that's exactly it that's exactly it and it's um yeah, through through my career so far, and certainly it's true for, for my private practice as well, is that, um, yeah, sexuality, gender and sex are all pervasive, um, no matter your, your culture, age, background, ability, what have you. Um, and particularly, I've, I've certainly kept that in mind starting my private practice because NDIS is certainly one of the main... Um, I suppose funding sources um, and and pool of clients that I, I tap into um, and I know that um, yeah for, for a lot of people with disability um, they may be queer as well um, I know that um, I've certainly worked a lot with um, a lot of autistic people who are also queer as well and um, yeah, really thoroughly enjoy working with the the intersections of those identities as well. That um, it's fascinating how much does overlap, particularly when it comes to um, you know when we when we talk about mental health social work in these communities, what we're mostly looking to. And I'm I'm giving away um, the the upshot of my safer practice session here is that mental health issues. 99 times out of 100 come down to the discrimination that people are experiencing in their home, their school, their workplace, their community, wherever it might be. And I'm finding very similar trends within the disability community as well, that it's not necessarily always the disability itself that's causing mental health issues. It's the way that society responds to disability and it's ableism. Um, within society so there's certainly those commonalities but there's of course a lot of um, issues that are unique and distinct um, to different um, identities and and backgrounds as well Um, yeah certainly um, depending on you know cultural background that you come from and and the religion often that is tied up within that or, or traditions within um, those those cultures, there can often be homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. Many would say it's not part of the culture, but finds its way to be um, conveyed within many people within particular cultures. And I'm also very mindful to to note that as a white person, it's certainly part not part of white culture, it's not part of any culture, but it finds its way into how people of particular cultures express themselves and are in the world as well. So it's it just finds its way, you know, homophobia, biphobia, whatever it might be, may find itself um, expressed in different ways, in different cultures, in different backgrounds. Um, so understanding those nuances, understanding yeah, the iniquities uh, within those communities is very important. Mm, and I'm really, um, I, you know, re- I really noticed that the, what you said around the discrimination that people face. So mm. what I'm, I'm gathering and from your sort of safer practice work is by being able to educate practitioners in, mm. in allied health, st- you know, in whatever service that you're working in, 
to reduce some of that discrimination then you're able to get people in the door you're able to help them feel heard and provide whatever other service it is that you're providing yes absolutely absolutely and i think that's for for a lot of lgbtiqa plus communities it's just knowing and and a lot of the stats back this up as well it's just knowing where a safe place is is most of the battle that if someone can come to a service, come to a, a counsellor, particularly when they're sharing such intimate details about their lives, to be their full selves without having to be guarded, without having to pass, without having to hide parts of their sexuality or gender. It means that we're already several steps ahead of where mm. they may not have been able to get to otherwise. Yeah, it fits in well. The The person that was interviewed um that'll be the episode prior to yours, was around starting a um, a gender clinic in the Western suburbs and exploring the idea that for some people they will pre- it prevents them from seeking other medical services not related to their gender because of the fear of stigma or misgendering or dead name, a range of other sort of barriers that it had other health complications in things that had nothing to do with actual gender yes absolutely absolutely i've got this mole that i need checked out or i've got whatever it might be and yeah when when you're not confident that you can show up and yeah a lot of trans gender diverse people in particular will find that they rock up to a session whether it's a gp or a counselor or whatever and they find that instead of, hey, I've got this mole that I need checked out, it's suddenly, so hang on, you know, and, you know, the, the dead naming and the misgendering and all the rest of it, and it becomes the queer person having to educate the health professional when it should be, yeah, that the health professional is already educated or at the very least knows when the right time is to ask these questions, when the right time to go to a session from Slade Consulting on um, how to work safely with LGBTIQ communities and and whatnot is the best thing to do. Um, And I try and make sure that I practice best practice in that regard by um, making sure that, you know, right from the very start, my website is queer friendly and you know I, I disclose my pronouns and this sort of thing and talk about my work within queer communities on my website my um, intake form includes questions around are you intersex or endosex are you cisgendered trans what is your gender um, what are your pronouns these sorts of things so that it becomes very very clear because I know for a lot of queer people they we are very astute to knowing the signs, knowing what is safe, where is safe by these subtle signs that if gender is asked male, female, there's a little, right, we'll just take a a little safety step backwards um, and so forth. So what, considering um, the listeners are generally practitioners and where that sort of that's the target audience, what, are some things that they can do? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, so I think firstly is to educate yourself is really important. Um, the internet has so much, 
so many resources and I, I know I say internet like I'm <laughs> from from many generations before but um but you know whether it's Instagram or Facebook or whatnot there's lots of great resources there then you know having a look more professionally at things like Minus 18 and Acon and Rainbow Health Victoria um have lots of great um resources and that's just looking at New South Wales Victoria um making sure that yeah you attend more formalized education as well um whether it's you know with your local lgbtiqa plus group myself uh, minus 18 there's a bunch of other um groups that that offer it looking at um whether it's a physical practice um what you you know what, what's in your waiting room is it um only photos and and pictures and posters of cisgendered heterosexual sexual people um or is there some diversity in the faces that people will see on posters um is there a little rainbow flag but if if you are posted putting up that um the particularly the progress rainbow flag um making sure that you can back that up making sure that you're putting that up there with confidence that you've done your homework um that you know um the right thing i think to um yeah knowing pronouns and what they mean and that you know it, it matters a hell of a lot to someone's mental health to mm. someone's well-being to be gendered correctly um for for cis people for people that aren't trans to be misgendered for a lot of cis non-trans people would feel strange and weird but for trans people it feels deeply uncomfortable deeply distressing um at worst so being aware of that and at the same time holding that lightly as well knowing that you are going to screw up and you may screw up regularly depending on who you are and how easily you can adapt i know that some people go right there's your pronouns boom and off they go for some people yeah you know some people find it easier to change um their thinking their way of dealing with people um but knowing that you'll stuff up and when you do, because we all will, um, is going, oh, yeah, sorry, slip up, I mean this, and not making a big deal out of it. Because mm. if you start going, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, that, that can feel quite distressing if you're at the receiving end of that as well. Um, yeah, there, there are a few little, little tips in there, yeah. And I wonder. I mean, I've got so many, so many things that I could, um, I could ask. But I think some people, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this. They forget that it can actually be really unsafe. You know, I've had clients who've been harassed on public transport. Who, you know, it's not, it's not a pathology to be paranoid. They are genuinely scared. And there are some suburbs that maybe that's okay, and other places where they go. And they're conflicted and they're nervous and they feel they can't wear what they want or people think, oh, you know, if you're dressing more feminine but you're saying your gender's male, that that doesn't make sense. You know, it's really, for them it's a safety thing, you know, and it might not occur. I mean, I don't have that problem walking down the street holding the hands of my male partner. We don't get looked at. Maybe we do. No, but not in that way, not in an unsafe way. Exactly. But for some of my, especially young people, they'll sit on their bus in a same-sex relationship and they're scared yes. and they've, they've had people spit on them or yell at them or stare at them and 
Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, the, the reality is that there's been experiences where one of my past clients has been physically assaulted just because of the way they appear. That and this becomes more true for trans people that and I, I never like going down the path of who passes because that's that's a whole other kettle of fish there of, and to clarify passing is a term that's used um, within trans communities of whether if you're a trans woman whether you look and I use inverted commas woman enough for a trans man man enough um, there's a whole there's layers and layers of bullshit that are inherent in that. And at the same time, trans communities talk about that for a very good reason, because if they feel they can pass, in inverted commas, then they... Safer. Yes, absolutely. They will feel much safer. And yes, you're right. There was, I, I do remember back to one client who said to me, I don't feel safe walking down the street to get my groceries in. And this was someone in a rural community. And I looked at her and I went, yeah, absolutely. You are not paranoid. You are living in reality. And that is a very frightening reality. Mm. And yeah, as health practitioners and, and particularly as social workers, our job is to make people feel safe, at least when they're with us. And making sure that we see people in their gender as their full self. I mean, we could say that for about practically all of the clients we work with. It becomes extra true, <laughs> if that's grammatically correct, for trans people because trans people are so used to not being seen as they are, as who they are, and that becomes life-threatening. Absolutely. Mm. As a practitioner, how do you sit with that? Mm. Um, you know, you can hold the space in the room, but over time, some of these stories have an impact and take their toll. How do you sit with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, to start off with, I think I, you know, earlier on in my career, I kind of struggled a bit more than I do today. I think I've realised very much the, the extent that social workers can go to in people's lives and the boundaries of our work as well. That, you know, I know that counselling at best can be, and, you know, we could argue about the figure, roughly 40% effective, um, sometimes more, sometimes less, that counselling itself will be effective in some ways but can it help people to reach all their goals all the time no and I I suppose I try and remain humble and try and remain very grounded in the amount that I can do for someone and also appreciate and even though it might be I don't want to say mundane but certainly day-to-day -day for us that you know, as social workers, we and, and pretty much every other health practitioner, we create a safe healing place for people. Whether or not that healing can happen might be another thing, but just creating that space when 
that space is not available anywhere else mm. in their life. If, you know, we know that for trans people, home can be one of the most unsafe places. School can be a very, very, very unsafe place. Work, there's very few safe places and counselling must be one of those safe places. So just that alone, if I can do that, then that's most of the battle. That's something rather than nothing. And, yeah, I suppose to, to come back to and, and answer more succinctly your question, being, <laughs> <laughs> being very clear about the limitations of my work but also holding what I can do as an important thing to do. Mm. Do you ever feel, I mean, we... we... We always talk about on the podcast the importance of supervision and peer groups. Do you find that sometimes there is a sense of helplessness at the broader system? Um, yes, absolutely. And I'm not going to lie, I do have my cynical moments. <laughs> and um, that, yeah, is challenging. And I think too um, part of my work in the past has been to set up Shepparton's first and now into its 10th year um, LGBTIQA plus festival out in the open. Um, come along to Shepparton in November, highly recommend it. Um, I may be doing some training around that time as well that you may be interested in. Um, and we know that safe places like that, again, can be so so mentally healthy and enlivening for a lot of people. So knowing that I think knowing that spaces and places and communities like that can and do exist mm. in my own community um, helps me to cure that cynicism, I suppose, and and being some part of that as well. Um, I do have two clinical supervisors now um, and very deliberately chosen you know them they both have great trauma backgrounds and one in particular um has lived and professional experience working with lgbtiq um communities as well so yeah making sure that i make the most of that supervision and i think to one thing that i'm i've been reflecting on a little more than usual is the the safety and the comfort and the, uh, I suppose, the sharing within a clinical supervisory relationship that it's no accident that clinical supervision in many ways mimics counselling, that there's that trust, there's deep sharing and and a belief in the supervisee from the supervisor and I get that from both my supervisors. And without that, supervision wouldn't work and I wouldn't get that safe place to, to vent, to explore, to make mistakes, to go into, oh, my God, there's this client, I don't know what to do, I'm so frustrated, there's nowhere to go. And then sometimes them going, well, yeah, they're, they're feeling that too whatever it might be, mm. um, yeah, it can be, be really helpful. Mm. So really processing some of those internal struggles and mm -hmm. the frustrations and some of our, sometimes our own sense of hopelessness that yes. there might be no other service or option or referral or some yeah. of those barriers. Absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, knowing the bounds of our 
practice as well. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. I also, I mean, since we last spoke, um, I've interviewed so many other people and it seems maybe unique to social, probably because we don't have so many other professionals but on the, the podcast, but there's always, people are always doing something else on the side. So they're coordinating a group, they're holding a practice group, they're doing an MHPN network, they're, they're always doing something. And I've been thinking recently about how that positions you um, and your credibility. So, you know, we're thinking about, in our con- we're talking about private practice in this, but we can't be generalists always and appease everyone. Sometimes I feel like we have to figure out what we think is right, what we want to advocate for and start doing some of that as well. Yes, absolutely. And I, I know that um, I do I do still get a great deal of joy from the generalist work that I inevitably do in my private practice and my other work as well. But I know that for me at least and, and learning more about myself and how I practice, how I am in the world, is that if I can specialise, if I can sink my teeth into a particular topic, a particular group of people, then I know that I know that my passion, my energy drives so much of my work and I'm at my best when I feel that energy for my client group, my individual client, and I know that time and again my my practice has gone back to the LGBTIQ plus community and there's been this growing theme of trauma through my work as well that, yeah, I know that if I can harness that um, in my work and in some of the, the other things that I'm doing in the, the community, then I know that I'm yeah at my best, at least most of the time. <laughs> Well, I think it's, I mean, and I use probably generalists in the wrong way, but I mean, even in, you know, if you're working in family violence or with children, like having a framework or a belief that underpins your work. So whether it is, um, you know, a feminist theory or a person-centered approach or a family system, like having something that helps you solidify your view of the world. Absolutely. I think it also guides the training that you do, the people that you talk to, the advocacy, because we're social workers all the time. It doesn't, as much as we try to switch it off, it, it doesn't switch off when you either get home or turn off the laptop if we're in a lockdown. That's it. That's exactly it. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, I often say to my social work students and, and people that I know are getting into social work is that you'll never look at the world the same way again that even if you I, I have a hunch that if you <laughs> leave social work there's a certain amount of that that you just can't turn off that you know how yeah different yeah structures will impact on people and, and whatnot and yeah that's and that's true for a lot of the work that we do and I think in some ways specialization can be a bit of a misnomer because there are so many of the similar issues that come up in a specialisation that, mm. you know, someone might come to me because only because they know that I'm a safe place to be in their identity. But what they really want to talk about is their relationship with their parents or their disordered eating or whatever it might be. And that could be coming from any population group, any age, any background. So, yeah. Mm. 
so many um, opportunities there to connect with people and provide a space where they can talk about all of those things. Yes. Um, And I imagine it can be quite hard if somebody does come because you're a safe place, but with a presentation that you may not be able to to do justice to or you're not that experienced with. I think, and I found that too, I think that can be quite hard on people. Like, but I really have connected with you. I'm like, but I, I can't work with or I have no experience treating X, Y, Z. I I need to refer you on. I, I can't hold that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, that can be so hard as well. And, and particularly in a rural area and working with the population group that I do is a referral on needs to be a very safe space. And I have a lot of faith in a lot of social workers, psychs, what have you, through Shepparton and, and our region. But there is still, I mean, even finding a specialist in, and if we go with eating disorder, I know of one practitioner that can adequately specialise in eating disorders in Shepparton. And as you've probably guessed, her waiting list is very long. And... Um, Yes, knowing the bounds and knowing yeah, the bounds of the practice. But, yeah, also going, is that an area that I can build into my practice as I build my career, build my skill set? And eating disorders is an example that I know that for a lot of um, LGBTIQ people, um, eating disorders can feature a little more than the average, um, you know, for, for trans and gender diverse people. Um the feeling of dysphoria can sometimes um, manifest itself as an eating disorder, at least in part. Sometimes it can come as separately as well. Um, so I'm starting to gain more and more skills around that. I can't necessarily manage a lot of eating disorders, but some eating disorder behaviours I can start to work with more than I would have before. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if people want to upskill a little bit, um, and start to make some changes or take some steps towards presenting as a more inclusive mm-hmm. practice and upskilling themselves. What do you offer and what are some other things that they can do? And we'll put all these um, links in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I do my best to keep my website up to date. So sladeconsulting.services. It's a, a new sort of domain handle there with the dot .services, not .com. Um, and yeah, so at the moment, what I'm offering is what I'm rhetorically calling calling the 101 and the 102 sessions. So <laughs> the ABCs of LGBTI2A plus communities, um, and that explores essentially what the hell all these letters mean. <laughs> um, and um, I say that because I, I get that sentiment from a lot of people, and it's yeah, that's a, a lot of letters to get your head around, and, and um, yeah recognise what they all mean for some people and also important to yeah know what they mean um so yeah that 101 um, the abc's session uh starts to explore yeah sex gender and sexuality and identities the um safe and is this for practitioners or for clients uh, for practitioners mostly, um, so I've, I've targeted, look, it's, it's open to practically anyone, but I do um, frame it to pretty much anyone who's working with people in a caring sort of role. So any health practitioners, social workers, teachers, I've 
deliberately kept it relatively broad, mm-hmm. um, particularly at this more introductory level. Um, and the flow on from that session is the safer practice, uh, where it explores a lot of the health data um, and um, yeah, data around safety, mental health, physical health of LGBTIQA plus people. Um, there are some very alarming statistics um, around the impacts of queer phobia on, um, excuse me, on queer communities. And yeah, it can be at least in part a, a fairly sobering session to start with, but I, I of course do, um, yeah, inject the hope that is absolutely there um, as to yeah how and what we can do and try and keep that as a, um, yeah, fairly conversational sort of space. As Great. Well. Mm. And if people want to connect with for secondary consults or group supervision, what are other sort of things that you offer? Yeah, so also offer um, roughly monthly uh, group supervision um, sessions. So I, yeah, I'm running them as you can register as an individual or if there's a few people that you know that might want to come along, you can come along and observe um, the conversation if that's what you're wanting to do. Um, What I do is, you know, a little before the session, I go, so has anyone got a case they want to present? What is the feel of where everyone's wanting to go? And keep it relatively flexible uh, in that that respect. Um, And, yeah, sometimes it'll be, can we find out more about um, just gender dysphoria in general? What does that mean? What's that all about? And how does that play out in a mental health setting? That Mm -hmm. sort of thing, for example. Um, Others might you know, here's the case presentation and I'll go, all right, so there's this best best practice framework, there's these resources and websites and all that sort of stuff. So um, fairly dynamic sort of space in that respect, yeah. Excellent. So all those um, links will be in the show notes and people can find you on the socials, LinkedIn. Absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn, on Instagram. My handle is at Lachlan underscore listens. Um, Lachlan listens. Yes. I love it. (laughs) I thought that was a perfect handle for a counsellor. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that one. Um, And on Facebook as well uh slave consulting is my page there um i'm probably a bit more active on linkedin and instagram um i find facebook can be a not so positive place sometimes so i try and avoid it a little bit but um yeah getting on there a little bit as well awesome thank Mm. you no problem (laughs) um yeah it's been interesting to see the progression of your work and um the transition to the consulting and the groups and it's really exciting Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited and I've got to curb my enthusiasm just a little bit and I don't go too nuts. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lachlan. Thanks, Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcast.